Good morning, Grace. Our scripture this morning is John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Is that on, it's on now? All right. Well, I, I need to give a little disclaimer. I, I've been able to hear out of my right ear for several weeks, which is distracting enough. And right now it's sort of coming in and out, actually. And so if I get this funny look on my face, there, there's an override, uh, a circuit override going on. So just pray for me and somebody just nudge me or something if I get stuck. Since we began looking at John's gospel three Sundays ago, we've zoomed in a little bit tighter each week. And what I mean by that is on the first Sunday, I gave you an introduction to the whole of the gospel according to John. And then last week, we looked a little bit more closely at all the verses uh, that Shannon just read, which is John's introduction, verses 1 through 18. And again, now this morning, we're going to zoom in a little bit closer still to look at verses 1 through 5. Uh, I don't know if there's a more significant passage in the entire Bible on the nature of Jesus Christ than our passage for this morning. Now that sounds cool, and it's easy to make statements like that, and hard to quantify them. But nevertheless, wherever this passage falls on the official significance of the nature of the Christ list, this is without question near the top of it. For in it, John makes nine specific claims about the Word, that is, about Jesus, that is, about the Christ that God promised to send. The Word was in the beginning. The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word was God. The Word was a person. All things were made through the Word. The Word was life. Within the life of the Word was the light of men. The light of the Word shines into darkness. And finally, ninth, the light of the Word overcomes the darkness. Now we could zoom in and spend weeks on each of these nine things from within the introduction, from within these first five verses, 
But I don't think we're going to do that. You'll see them zoomed in more as we move through the gospel in the actual life and teaching and work of Jesus. So we're not going in any tighter than this week on the introduction. We'll spend several more weeks in it and the, the rest of the verses. But grace, because every one of these is seen in Jesus, we'll have plenty of chances to come back. So here's the big idea. The big idea of this passage is that the Christness of Jesus, the fact that he is the promised Christ, the Messiah, the big idea of this passage is that the Christness of Jesus was even more awesome than anyone could have anticipated. We saw a few weeks ago a number of the claims, these massive claims of the Christ that God would promise to send, and that is Jesus, but Jesus was even greater than all of these promises, and John is trying to help us to see that as well. And the big takeaway then, if you hear this, I think the way God means us to hear it, the big takeaways are more fervent worship. You will you will see Jesus more fully in the light of his glory and your worship for him, your your sense of awe and wonder and amazement and satisfaction in him will grow. Your your praise will be more exuberant, more consistent. Also, eager obedience. When when you can see that this is the nature of the Christ who is also the king who calls me to follow him and live my entire life in light of him, who is the cornerstone upon which all is meant to be built, our obedience is obvious. When you are totally convinced that the person commanding you has nothing but your best interest in mind and is leading you to the greatest place you could ever be, why wouldn't you obey? It would be foolish not to. And by grasping this passage well, you're going to be more eager in your obedience. And lastly, more well-founded in your hope. To be a Christian is is a statement about where your hope lies, ultimately. All of us, to be able to get out of bed, to drive a car, to, to be here, to do anything in life, have to have some measure of hope in something. This passage helps us to see that ultimately that ought to be in Jesus, and when it is, it is well-founded beyond anything else. So let's pray that God would grant all of this to us. God, thank you. We This, this is my plan. This has been my prayer throughout the week. I, I think these things are at the heart of what John is writing for in this section. But as always, my earnest prayer, our earnest prayer, is that not our will, but yours would be done. These are the things I think, in light of this text, you mean to do in us. And so I do pray that you would help us to be more awed by the Christness of Christ, and that that would result in more fervent worship, eager obedience, and rest in our the well-foundedness of our hope. I, I pray that those things would be the case. Those are good things and would please you and Help us to live as we were made to live. But, God, what we really want most is whatever you want most for us. And so I pray that you would give us the kind of faith that would receive it in joy, whatever form it takes. We just pray that you would be honored by the way we, the way I preach and the way that we listen and apply your word with the help of your spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I don't know if you've read any of the Gospels closely enough together to get this, but this is this is really interesting. Uh, I think Matthew's Gospel begins plainly. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Straightforward, simple. It makes sense. It's what we might expect, the way we might expect a gospel to begin. Mark is just like that. His begins, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Doesn't get any more straightforward than that. You know what's about to come. Luke's is a bit more long-winded. It's all one sentence, but it's a lot of words, but equally consistent. And if I were to write a gospel, I think it would begin a lot like this, minus the Theophilus part. Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word uh, have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught about Jesus." It makes sense, right? If you're going to tell the story of the life of Jesus, there you go. That's the first verse of each of the first three Gospels. Well, John's isn't quite like that, is it? His begins a little different. In the beginning, he wrote, was the Word. (laughs) Okay. Uh, All right. Not sure where that's going, but that's interesting. That leaves us with two questions, I think, at least. One is, what is... The Word? And and what does he mean by the beginning? The beginning of what? And what kind of word? Let's 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 look at those real quickly. What is the word? The answer to this question is both simple and profound at the same time, which is a, a great summary of all of John's gospel. It's simple to the point where the kids in this room can get it. You can get his stories in the most basic sense without a lot of help. All of us can, but beneath all of his stories is something more profound than any of us can get fully. In its most basic sense for John, it's simple. He means Jesus. (laughs) That'll become more clear in verse 2 and and even more clear still in verse 14. But it's simple. The word is Jesus, the Christ. But it's profound for the reason that John chose that title. By referring to Jesus as the Word, John was indicating that Jesus is the full and final revelation from God. We read more directly about that in other places in the Bible and in other places in John. For instance, Hebrews says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, the word of God. John's central point here in reference to Jesus as the word of God is that Jesus is, is a bunch of fancy words back to back, the incarnate manifestation of God's power and wisdom. It's God's power and wisdom put in flesh. Jesus would speak only. What do I mean by that? Jesus would only speak that which is true. And he would perfectly accomplish all of the purposes for which he was sent. That is what the word of God does. That is what the word of God is. And so we can trust him, Grace. We can trust him and follow him and do so in the knowledge that he will never lead us to the wrong place or fail to bring us to the best place. He is the word of God and you and I can trust him. We'll see this more clearly, like I said, in passages like John 14, 6, where Jesus himself describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. That's awesome. 
Well, that leads to the, the second question within this first point. So I told you there's nine claims, and the first is that in the beginning was the Word. What is the Word? The Word is Jesus, the incarnate manifestation of God's power and wisdom. But in the beginning of what? Just like the first, this answer, the answer to the second question is, well, simple, kids, you can get this, and profound. Simply, John clearly meant to draw his reader's attention to Genesis 1.1. If you know any passage in the Bible, it's most likely this. If you encounter someone on the street and they know any passage of the Bible, it probably is this, or maybe John 3.16. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The beginning that John has in mind here refers to the creation of time and space, heaven and earth, of all that has been made. That's the simple part. The profound part of the answer to this question, is that this is a statement concerning the pre-existence of Jesus. That's remarkable. We'll get a chance to unpack that as we move through John's Gospel. But it is a statement concerning the pre-existence or eternality, or if you want a really fancy word, the aseity of Jesus. Even though it isn't as obvious in the translation, the way, the way it comes to us in English, grammatically it's entirely clear that John 1.1 is speaking of the fact that the word Jesus, the Christ, existed with God, as we'll see in a minute, continually, forever, eternally, before anything that was made was made. We'll see this again lived out in Jesus' life and teaching in passages like John 17.5. I told you we've zoomed in a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more in this introduction, and that we'll zoom in even a little bit more to each of these claims as we work through John, and John 17.5 is an example. And now, Father, this is the words of Jesus, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What a claim. What a Christ. Here's the second claim. The Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word. Second, the Word was God. We see that in the second clause in the first verse of John's Gospel. The Word was with God in the beginning, or or the Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God. This is remarkable. Not only has Jesus, the Word, existed eternally, but he has done so eternally with God. This, too, is part of the John 17.5 passage. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Embedded in this claim that Jesus was with God from the beginning is the very purpose of our being. You ever wondered what you're here for? Have you ever wondered why you were made or what is the meaning of life? Have you ever encountered someone who who just felt lost and didn't know where to look for purpose and meaning? This is this is it. Wow, right? That's quite a you didn't know maybe you were coming here to find the purpose of life, but you did. This is awesome. We too exist to be with God. (laughs) Jesus was with the Father from the beginning. That's what we were made for, to be with God. God. Contrary to what most people think when they think of Christianity, Christianity is not mainly a sexual ethic or a list of rules or prohibitions. Christianity is not mainly about Sunday mornings or giving money. And the main offering of the Christ isn't that you would have your best life now. Christianity at its very core is the offer of eternal fellowship with God through Jesus Christ, that we would be with God. And it is available to us because of this passage, or what this passage tells us, because Jesus has eternal fellowship 
with the Father. This will become more clear in passages like John 17, 20 and 21. We'll drill in deeper. When we hear Jesus say, I do not ask for only these in his prayer to the Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What What is the prayer? That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they may also be in us. That's the goal of all human life is to be with God forever and ever in fullness of joy and satisfaction through Jesus Christ. That's awesome. If you didn't know that, write that down. That's awesome. I imagine you can already tell there's a sense in which John is building in his portrayal of Jesus, the Christ. That is, that he is the word. The manifestation of God's power and wisdom is remarkable. That he has been that eternally is more shocking still. That he has eternally been in the presence of God and invites us to join him is another level still. Where do you go from there? That's about as big as it gets, isn't it? No, <laughs> it gets bigger. That's that's the next point. In the beginning was the Word. It's awesome. And the Word was with God. That's awesome. And the Word was God. What's already been hinted at is made explicit in the final clause of the first verse. We might ask how it is possible for Jesus to be the Word, the eternal incarnate power and wisdom of God who lived forever in fellowship with God. How is that possible? Here John tells us that it was possible because Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What we have here is an explicit statement concerning the very nature of God. that It hints at the Trinity. God's existence eternally is three persons in one essence, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's clear that Jesus is not the Father, for he is with God, But it is also clear that he shares in the divine nature. We're going to come back to this again and again and again. I've read a few of these to you, but Grace, listen to these claims concerning Jesus as God. And we'll unpack these and we'll see that the Spirit, too, is a part of this triune eternal fellowship. This is John 5. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 8:58 Jesus said to them truly truly I say to you before Abraham was and he took on God's most formal name I am John 10:30 I and the Father are one John 20:28 20, Thomas answered him you are my Lord and my God Ultimately this is the source of our hope and every one of the prom- in every one of the promises of Jesus If I if I promise I've said this to you guys but it, what if I made great promises to you guys? You all get a million bucks. All of you. Every one of you, you get a million bucks. Or I'll teach you how to fly. You know, just stick around after church, and I'm going to show you all how to fly. I can I can make these claims, but you all know I can't deliver on them. Well, what is the difference? Jesus' promises are bigger than anything I could make. How do we know that he can deliver on them? And this is at the heart of that. His ability to keep make good on every one of his promises. His ability to atone for our sins and bring bring us into fellowship with God, all of that and all the rest are because he is God, the sovereign ruler of all, the word. 
It's because of all of that that he is able to accomplish his every purpose and his every promise to us will never fail. If he was anything less, we would be right to be nervous, to be skeptical, to hold back at least a little bit of hope. But it is because he is the sovereign God of all that his purposes and promises will never fail. It is also because he is God that he did not have sin of his own when he came in the flesh to be atoned for. And it is because he is God that he was able to die for the sins, all the sins of all who would receive him, who would call on his name. And it is because he is God that he can legitimately offer everlasting fellowship with himself. What a claim. What a Christ. Next, verse 2. The Word was a person. In the second verse, he was in the beginning with God, is simply a restatement. It's John trying to make even more clear what he's already said in the first passage. He was with God in the beginning. It's simply a restatement of the beginning of the first verse with one slight, though critical, addition. If all we had was John 1, 1, look at it again, Grace. Just look at John 1, 1, only 1, 1. If that's all that we had, there's some confusion, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What does that actually mean? I've told you already, but if all you had was verse 1, you you might not know this yet. In fact, you certainly wouldn't know this yet. We wouldn't have any real understanding of what John was talking about concerning the Word. The Word itself would have been familiar both to the Greeks and to the Jews, The word we translate logos was a really important word in the culture to which John was writing. For the Greek, it referred to the impersonal idea of reason or knowledge. It was just this impersonal idea of reason or knowledge. It wouldn't have been surprising at all to hear that reason existed forever with the gods. That would have that wouldn't have been shocked to anyone's ears. Likewise, to the Jew, it referred more, most specifically to God's powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation. Those, those are D.A. Carson's words. And more generally, to God's wisdom. Again, it is not hard to imagine a faithful Jew nodding along in agreement with what John claimed in one one, with no idea that he was talking about Jesus. But what we find at the beginning of verse 2, and as I said more clearly still in verse 14, is the idea of the word being a he. (laughs) Did you catch that? Again, the, the first verse is weird, but it probably wouldn't be shocking. The second verse tells us that this word is a, a person, a he, literally to the one who. This would have been unintelligible entirely to the Greek and at least a bit eye-raising to the Jew. They did have this concept in Proverbs, for instance, of wisdom personified. But John is no doubt saying something different here. The word, the logos, for John was no mere abstract concept. It was far more than a simple declaration that God is eternally wise or eternally working or that wisdom and work were eternally with God. It is a declaration once again that the Word was a person. And this too is directly tied to our person, or our purpose in life. Our ultimate end through faith in Jesus is not fellowship with an abstract principle, but with a person, the fullest and most complete and perfect person, Jesus Christ. 
It is not an overstatement to say that all the good you have ever sought in another human, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a child or a parent, all the good you've ever sought in another person and all the good you've ever sought in anything, it is not an overstatement to say that all of that is found fully in Jesus. All of those things are meant to point you to the person who can do what no one else can do. Every relational need you've ever felt is found fully in Jesus and truly and rightly in Jesus. Likewise, none of the things in another person that break or limit our fellowship with them. How many of you have been hurt by a relation, in a relationship or by another person? Even, even a little bit. And the answer, of course, is all of us. And none of those things are found in Jesus. His highest promise is that he will withhold nothing from us when we come to him in faith. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face at the return of Jesus. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Are you getting a sense of how truly remarkable John's introduction is and how truly staggering his description of the Christ is? We're not done yet. What a claim. What a Christ. Next, verse 3. All things were made through the Word. Another question we might have or we might ask from John's opening words is, what was Jesus doing eternally with the Father? Kids, you, you probably are better at thinking of those things than us adults are. You think that way. Okay, that's a long time to be with somebody. What were they doing? I mean, I've got a little girl who can't think of more than three seconds at one time. What, what in the world would you be doing with someone for eternity? Well, it's not necessarily saying all of what Jesus was doing through eternity, but what was he doing at the beginning? That's what John is talking specifically about. And he tells us. He says, all things were made through him, and without him not anything that was made was made. In the beginning, Jesus was with God doing what? Creating the universe. The passage we've considered several times in Hebrews echoes this, through whom also God created the world, the author of the Hebrews tells us. That's quite an accomplishment to have on your resume. Hey, what were you doing yesterday? Oh, you know. Without getting too far into the weeds, John reveals something truly, truly remarkable with this remarkable claim. Consider again the very beginning of Genesis. Listen, listen, Grace, listen freshly. And God said, said, let there be light. What happened? There was light. And God said, verse 6, let there be an expanse. And it was so. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place. And it happened. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to their kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 14, and God said, let the let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens and to separate the day from the night. Verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. And God saw that it was good. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And it too was so. And lastly, in verse 26, and God said, let us make man 
in our image after our likeness. And behold, now it was very good. You see what this means, Grace? Do you see what this means? God said, and it was so. That is, God created all that he had made through simply speaking it into existence. He created through his word. He created, John wrote here, and he means us to be shocked by this, through Jesus. Jesus was the word through which God made all that has been made. I don't claim to understand exactly what this means in its fullness, but this is a staggering claim. What a claim. What a Christ, Grace. Grace, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why are we going so slowly through this? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you may have life in his name. Number six. There's nine. Here's six. We're flying. The beginning of verse four. The sixth claim made by John was that the word was life. In verse 4, John wrote, in him was life. From the previous point, the, the, the fifth claim that I just shared with you, this might seem redundant. Is he just saying the same thing again? We, we just said that all life came from Jesus at creation, all life outside of himself anyway. Is, isn't that just, is he just saying the same thing again? And in him was life, meaning he created life. Well, that might be part of what John meant here at the beginning of verse 4, but that's not even close to all of what he meant. The main point here is that, that Jesus doesn't simply give life grace. He is life. This is, this, <laughs> this is remarkable. The main point here is that Jesus doesn't simply give life. He is life. As we saw earlier in John 14, 6, Jesus didn't say, I have the life. What did he say? I am the life. Similarly, when we get to passages like chapter 5, verse 26, we'll get an even fuller sense of what John had in mind. Listen to this. Jesus taught, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. There are so many implications of this that it's hard to even begin to address them. Again, we'll do it more as we work through the gospel. That's what John means us to do. He's dropping these on us now so that when we come to them in his stories of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, we'll have categories to be properly awed and properly orient our lives to them. But, but, but I want to say two right here. First, get this. <laughs> to say that Jesus offers eternal life is to say that Jesus offers himself. The offer of eternal life is not just the offer that you get all the puppies you want and you get all the, the Fogo de Chao steak you want and all the Nelson's ice cream you want. And it's not just to say that all these things on earth that you really like, they'll be yours for forever. If you had all of that but missed this, you'd have nothing. To say that Jesus offers eternal life, which John claims here and which we'll see played out in the life of Jesus, is to say that Jesus offers himself to us eternally. We're seeing, we're seeing over and over in these opening verses that the greatest gift we might receive is Jesus. It's not something Jesus offers, it's himself. Jesus is eternal life. Jesus is salvation. That's the first implication of all of this. And the second, in our, in our culture, we need to hear this. We always need to hear this, but especially now. This means, Grace, that issues of life, when we do um, 
Sanctity of Life Sunday, for instance, or when we when we help at pro life clinics or things like that, when we when we pray for our community, when we it means the issues of life are not ultimately tied to the dignity of, of, of the person. Although they're, they are tied to that, they're not ultimately tied to that. What, what do I mean by that? Issues of life among people aren't mainly about issues of life among people. They're not mainly tied to the dignity, dignity or worth of that person, but to Jesus. If Jesus is life, our interaction with life is in a sense our interaction with Jesus. The fact that Jesus is life is at the very heart of how we ought to think about birth or infertility or abortion or birth defects or murder or euthanasia, for instance. These cultural issues that are in front of us, these biological or or matter-of-fact issues that are in front of us, John is telling us are ultimately about Jesus. If he is life and life, and, and all life has life in him, there are a few things that should cause us to tremble more than the undervaluing or the devaluing of all who have been made in his image. To have life in any sense is to have Jesus in some sense. And to have eternal life is to have Jesus in the fullest sense. What a claim. What a Christ. Seventh, verse 4. In him was life. And the second part is, and the life was the light of men. Okay, I I know I say this often when I preach, and I've probably said it several times already, so I wouldn't blame you if it produces a kind of diminishing return, a a diminishing recapturing of your attention, but this is a big deal. uh, That the life was the light of men. It means two things that are absolutely critical for living in this world. First, every day, all day. Every day, all day. Every day, all day. All of us, every person on earth, is faced with choices, moral choices and ethical choices and logistical choices and relationship choices and worldview choices and job choices and family choices and education choices and entertainment choices and money choices and clothing choices and housing choices and food choices, and you get it. Further, further, every choice you make, kids, you need to understand this, every choice that you make is on some basis. They don't just... The things that you choose don't just pop out of nowhere. You choose these kids, whether to eat a, a, a sucker or to eat a banana. Come out of something. They're made on some basis, some set of beliefs or preferences or goals or desires or authorities. I mean, a lot of the choices you make are probably rather whether or not you'll get in trouble for making that choice if you're a kid. And maybe as an adult. In this short, simple clause, in the second half of the fourth verse of this gospel, John declared that Jesus alone is the true light. That is, he alone is the only true source of wisdom or understanding, the only right source on which we can base our decisions and our choices, the only legitimate basis on which we make our countless everyday choices. Jesus alone illuminates the way things truly are. Things seem a certain way, but Jesus alone shines light on them for us to be able to see them as they really are, as God made them and as God intended them to be. That's what Jesus meant in John fourteen six again when he said, I am the way and the truth. 
I light up the path that you're meant to walk on. I light up the nature of sports. I'm the one that gives meaning and purpose and clarity to your job and your spouse and your relationships and math. Second, the fact that Jesus was the life and the life. Now, now notice what he says. Look, look at the verse uh, again. This is, this is important. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. That's important. The second thing to see is that the fact that Jesus was life and that the life was the light of men means, get this, that light only comes fully and truly, light only comes fully and truly after the life. That's a big deal. It is only once we have new life in Jesus, the new life which is Jesus, that illuminating that is wisdom, the wisdom we need to live as we were made to live in this world comes. The reason for this will become clear in the next, next and second to last point, but what a claim, what a Christ. Number eight, beginning of five. We just saw that the wisdom and understanding the light of Jesus always only comes on the other side of life in Jesus. You can never truly understand yourself You can never truly understand anyone else, the world that you're in, apart from life in Christ. But but why is that? The reason, John tells us in the beginning of 5, is that we are born in darkness. That is, we are born in sin. The light isn't shining, John says, into light. It's shining into darkness. And the most definitive characteristic of darkness in this moral sense in which Jesus and John use it, is that it is the opposite of. It is opposed to. In fact, we'll see in a bit that it hates the light. Apart from the life of Christ, we love darkness. And so we need the light to shine in us. But John wants his readers to understand that once the light of Christ shines upon us, and through it, the life-giving grace of God comes to us, we see. We see. The light shines in the darkness. This we'll see more clearly in passages like John 3.19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. This is Jesus. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For now, let's praise God that while we were still in the darkness, the light of Christ shone into it. God, praise God that he did not wait until we chose on our own to come into the light. But he sent the light to us. He sent Christ to us to give us life and then to see in the light in our darkness while we were still in it. Lastly, finally, and most gloriously of all. I've got a team. Some of you have know, know I have a team. Uh, every week, I have no idea which way the outcome is uh, going to go. We got absolutely smoked yesterday. Finally and most gloriously, not only did the light shine in the darkness, but it did so victoriously. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is big news. In the literal and immediate sense, there were some who tried to kill Jesus, as you've probably heard, and in some ways succeeded. But what they did not succeed in is snuffing out his light or his life. He rose from the dead. He could not be overcome. But it is bigger news still in the eternal and eschatological sense, the fullness of time sense. Grace Church, there will never be, 
There will never be a single speck of darkness that will gain victory over the light of Jesus Christ. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, never, anywhere, ever will darkness overcome the true light of Jesus. Neither Jesus, John, nor I are ignorant of the fact that evil exists in the world and that it seems to be winning in certain places at certain times, sometimes a lot. So we'll certainly need some explaining here. And that will come when we get to passages like John chapter 12, 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in it while you have light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. We'll get to this. How can I say that no speck of light will overcome the light of, no speck of darkness will overcome the light of Christ when there's evil in the world? But for now, however, and in conclusion, believe the promises of John and Jesus that the darkness has not, nor will it ever overcome the light, which is Jesus, who is the glorious Christ. Place your hope in that, and you will not be put to shame. Seek your rest in that, and you will know peace. The Word was in the beginning, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was a person, all things were made through the Word, the Word was life, within the light of the Word was the light of men, the light of the Word shines in the darkness, and the light of the Word overcomes the darkness. What claims? What a Christ.